Hello, my name is Judith Albert and welcome back to our podcast Wannsee, looking at the international dimension of the Holocaust. And my name is Jakob Müller. In this episode of Wannsee, we are going to speak about Belgium and the story of a remarkable resistance organization in Belgium during the Second World War, the Committee for the Defense of the Jews, the CDJ. At the beginning of the 20th century, Belgium was one of the leading industrial nations. Lying on the crossroads between Britain, France, Germany and the Netherlands, it was a major hub for the European trade and commerce, as it is, with its capital Brussels and Europe's second largest port in Antwerp, still today. During the First World War, from 1914 to 1918, most of Belgium had been occupied by the Germans. After the liberation, the country was among the victors of the war. It occupied parts of Western Germany together with the other Allied forces and even annexed a small part of Germany, the Eupen Malmedy region. After the Nazis came to power in Germany in 1933, the country gradually returned to neutrality in an attempt to avoid involvement in a second European conflict. Nonetheless, on May 10th, 1940, Germany attacked in Western Europe and invaded Belgium for the second time. After the defeat of France, Belgium and the Netherlands, Belgium together with two French departments came under the German military commander Alexander von Falkenhausen. The Belgian government fled to Britain, but the Belgian administration continued to function under German control allowing the Germans to minimize the deployment of their occupational forces, but obligating them at the same time to search for compromises with the Belgians. Most of Belgians, between 90 and 60,000 Jews, had not the Belgian nationality. They were mainly refugees from Eastern Europe. They had fled the Russian Empire when a gulf of anti-Semitism swept the country in the 1880s. They wanted to escape nationalist Poland in the 1920s or came from Germany after the Nazis had come to power in the 1930s. After the occupation in 1940, they soon became the target of discrimination and persecution by the Germans. Because the Germans did not know who was Jewish, all Jews in Belgium were ordered to register themselves at the places where they lived. Jewish businesses had to be marked as such, Jewish property was confiscated and in 1931 Jews were restricted to live in the four cities of Brussels, Antwerp, Liège and Charleroi. In May 1942 Jews in Belgium were forced to wear a yellow star in direct preparation for the deportations that were soon to follow. On the 4th of August 1942 the first of 28 transports left the assembly camp in Mechelen a town that is located between Antwerp and Brussels. The country's largest cities were also the places where the biggest Jewish communities were located. From a former infantry barrack, the Caserne du Saint, more than 25,000 Jews and 300 Roma were deported, mostly to the German extermination camp Auschwitz-Birkenau. Only about 1,200 survived the Holocaust. Some of the survivors in 1996 
founded the Jewish Museum of Deportation and Resistance that was located in a part of the former assembly camp. In 2012, the museum became the Caserne Dussin, Memorial, Museum and Documentation Center on Holocaust and Human Rights, where our guest in this episode is working as a researcher and archivist. Doreen Steiven is an expert on the hiding and rescue of Jews during the Holocaust. She assisted in researching and developing Caserne Dussin's permanent exhibition, inaugurated in December 2012. Doreen also represents Cassandra Dussin within the European Holocaust Research Infrastructure. We are very happy to have you, Doreen. Welcome to Wannsee, looking at the international dimension of the Holocaust. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start um, with the questions before 1940, before the occupation. And um, we want to know some things about anti-Semitism and fighting against it. As we already said, the vast majority of Belgium's Jews had not the Belgian nationality. Many had first had experiences with anti-Semitism in Poland, Russia, Germany or elsewhere. And there was also anti-Semitism in Belgium. Um, were there any organized attempts to counter this threat? Yes, there were. Um, it's, it's very important in the Belgian case to keep in mind that it is a very diverse Jewish community. It's actually pretty unique because, as you mentioned, we had three large waves of immigration from three different parts of Europe, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, Poland mostly, and then um, Nazi Germany and uh, Austria after the Anschluss. So this has really created a community with great diversity. We had about we had over 60 nationalities amongst the Jewish population. We had all kinds of professions. Uh, most people know the diamond industry, of course, in Antwerp, which is still large today. But the most part of the Jewish uh, people worked in the textile industry, leather workers, seamstresses, tailors, that kind of professions. Um, most of them were not very wealthy. And those who were... Um, of more uh, who had more economic power were mostly part of the five percent that held Belgian nationality. They also had all kinds of uh, political convictions going from extreme left-wing communist leftist Zionists to conservative more right-wing orientations or apolitical and also in the religious um, perspective they were from atheists over um, uh, obedient of the Jewish traditions to really orthodox. So it's a very diverse community. And um, most of them were recent immigrants from um, Poland or Austria and, and Nazi Germany who had not had the time to integrate in non-Jewish Belgian society. So many lived within their own communities, spoke Yiddish, did not really master French or Uh, Dutch, which are two of the three national languages of Belgium. So it's a very diverse community. And of course, in 1929, with the economic crisis and then the refugee wave starting as the Nazis rise to power in Germany in 1933, we see that this combination of um, uh, refugee influx, economic uncertainty, high unemployment rates, creates a rise in anti-Semitism and racism um, in Belgium, as many Belgians consider these uh, people to uh, come to take their jobs. They feel threatened. They feel um, less, less 
empower of their own lives. And of course, if you look for a scapegoat, then the newcomer is often the one who um, gets the blame for that. So yes, there is rising anti-Semitism, but we cannot forget that anti-Semitism, in a sense, is also part of uh, Catholic religion, for example, and the Flemish part, the northern part of Belgium, has a very Catholic tradition. So you can see there that um, from a religious point of view, anti-Semitism is part of some uh, religious um, convictions as well. So it's not something anti-Semitism did exist in Flanders before the economic crisis of 1929 and the influx from Nazi Germany and Austria in 1933. That doesn't uh, mean that the late 1920s, uh, early 1930s were a turning point because at that point um, Jewish life in Belgium was aware, as you mentioned, of anti-Semitism, was aware of what was happening in Nazi Germany, in Austria, the anti-Semitism and the pogroms in Eastern Europe. So we see that as the Jewish community feels that anti-Semitism is on the rise in Belgium and this leads to some initiatives, but we have to point out that these initiatives are uh, more intellectual initiatives and that they won't be really successful. So um, we see, for example, that uh, mainly in French-speaking parts uh, of Brussels, in liberal and leftist circles, that there are um, organizations being created and these organizations present themselves as Belgian organizations, like and there's the Ligue Belge des Droits de l'Homme, so the Belgian League for Human Rights. It's a, mm -hmm. a Belgian organization, but its uh, vice president is Max Gottschalk, who is a, a, a well-known member of the Jewish community. So this type of leagues, there are other examples as well, their main goal is to fight fascism and condemn the rising anti-Semitism. Um, there's a very well-written uh, uh, PhD, which will hopefully be turned into a book by a colleague of mine, Yaniv Stamberger, who has analyzed Jewish life before the Second World War. And he really shows in his work that Belgium, in general, for the people arriving here, both Jewish and non-Jews, was seen as a liberal and hospitable country before 1933. But okay. um, with um, the, the, the influx of um, refugees, that this influx is providing anti-Semites in Belgium with arguments for their anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic uh, discourse. So these organizations that are created, these anti-Semitist uh, anti organizations, are really uh, trying to counter this by countering this anti-Semitic press. Their main goal is to change the view of the Belgian population by publishing articles, by contacting organizations that publish anti-Semitic articles or books or pamphlets, and to try to change the public opinion. But of course, in as I said, in a context with economic uncertainty, people are in their daily struggle of life. This will not work very well because people have other worries on their minds. So that's a bit of the context um, of how anti-Semitism is trying to be that is on the rise and how Jewish organizations and Belgian organizations are trying to um, counter it. But again, it's not very mm -hmm. success successful attempt. Okay. Yeah, you, you said that, of course, 1933 is kind of a turning point because uh, in Germany, anti-Semitism becomes state policy and therefore becomes more acceptable for 
many people all over Europe as a way of dealing with what the Nazis call the uh, Jewish question. But at the same time, there is a uh, combat against anti-Semitism, as you said, uh, namely in socialist and communist circles. I remember that the mayor of Antwerp, Camille Hausmanns, participated in anti-fascist demonstrations that led to a riot with uh, German diplomacy. But um, if we return to one of the founders of the CDJ, of the later um, Committee for the Defense of the Jews, Red Jospa, he himself had come from Bessarabia, which is now, I think, Moldavia, if I'm uh, correct. And he was also part of the Communist Party. And he was part of an organization, I think, was called Belgian League Against Racism and Anti-Semitism in Liège. Did this work against anti-Semitism in, I guess, a mainly socialist, communist organization play any role for his later engagement during the war? Yes, well, the, the figure of Gertjelspa is, of course, um, of crucial importance for the committee in the defense of Jews. Um, he was indeed also a member of, a founding member of the League, which you just mentioned. The League was founded in, it's a Brussels organization, it was founded there in 1936, and then local branches of it were created, mainly in larger cities with the with, um, with um, uh, larger communities in Wallonia. So in Flanders and Antwerp, for example, there's no branch of the League that will be um, working there. But this League that was created in 1936 with the help of Gertrude Spa was supposed to bring together a large number of Jewish associations, Jewish immigrant associations and Belgian groups um, of various political persuasions in order to combat anti-Semitism. And it was um, fairly successful, let's say, uh, but again, mainly in um, progressive circles and um, communist socialist circles. So the important part of Jospas' engagement in this organization is that he meets people there that will be of crucial importance to the Committee for the Defense of Jews during the war. So uh, Jospas was a founding member, but the first president of the League, for example, was Emile Hombrezin, a okay. um, very um, more leftist-oriented but uh, proactive Catholic who would also become a founding member of the Committee for the Defense of Jews during the war. So in his work for the League, we see that Jospas already create some type of network from which he will mm -hmm. benefit during the war. Okay, that's very interesting. So these pre-war networks were very influential, of course, for the later organization of resistance uh, during the war. Yeah, before we go um, into the details about the um, CDG, um, we want to talk about the um, Belgians public. So um, it's quite a wide question, but maybe you can give us uh, an idea of it. The question is, what was the response of the Belgians uh, to the persecution? There was a debate on the role of the Belgium's administration in the persecution of the Jews. A Belgian report that was published in the 2000s bore the name La Belique du Ciel Gewillig. La Belgique, Belgique du Ciel, <laughs> Gewillig Belgique. Yeah. Willing, willingly Belgium. Yes. 
Um, yeah, exactly. This uh, indicating that the Belgian uh, bureaucracy uh, participated without much resistance with the anti-Jewish policy of the Germans. Uh, other researchers argued against it um, and indeed, except from the first roundups in Antwerp, the Belgian police refused to cooperate in the uh, arrest of Jews and in Brussels, the major refused to hand out the yellow stars. Um, what is your opinion on that matter? Um, was the Belgian state willingly cooperating or was it more on the resisting side? Uh, both. It's... Um As in many historical discussions, there is not one answer to this question. Um, you, we can see a change of heart during the occupation. So we can't say that Belgian administration took one stance and maintained it during the war. And we can also not say that every member of the Belgian administration had the same position towards the persecutions and the deportations of Jews. If we look at the end of 1940 and the introduction of the first anti-Jewish measure in October 1942, which stated that all Jews from the age of 15 have to report at the town halls and get registered as Jews in a Jewish register, there we can see that actually none of the municipalities and none of the Belgian clerks, as far as we know, object against this rule. So this anti-Jewish measure, which is installed by the Militärverwaltung, is actually followed up by the administrations, in, in, in many cases, to the letter. We know from some testimonies that when some people went to register at the municipality, some of the clerks said, okay, you know, you have two Jewish grandparents, not three, so just go away and I will not register you and we'll just keep it silent. So we know that there's some type of... that some of the, the clerks feel that this is not okay to do this, but... There's no general sense of disobedience yet, and this will change during the war. As you mentioned, the number of anti-Jewish measures will augment greatly, especially in 1941, first half of 1942. And at that point, we can see at some points that, especially against the introduction of the Jewish star in the summer of 1942, resistance will rise. Because the star of David is visible. All the other measures, if you're not a member of the Jewish uh, community, it is harder to spot them. Like the curfew, it only affects you if you're Jewish. The non-Jewish Belgian population is not affected by that. Or the, um, the, the order that Jewish pupils can no longer attend non-Jewish schools, this is a measure that only affects Jewish pupils. Okay, the non-Jewish children will see their Jewish friends leave, but it is all oriented towards creating amongst the non-Belgian Jewish population the idea that it is that there is a separation between the Jewish and the non-Jewish population. So separate them. So once deportations start, the Belgian non-Jewish community will not be so inclined to react against it. That's the general idea. So we can also see that with the administration, that um, large... Um, opposition arises mainly around the introduction of the Yellow Star. As you mentioned, the mayors of Brussels, but they do debate about it. We know that the mayors of Brussels, which, which are 17 in total, get together and they really debate what they have to do. Will we sell the star as the Militärgewaltung uh, is telling us or not? And then at the end, they decide not to do so, but this is not a general decision. I mean, there is discussion and they decide not to do it. 
in Brussels, um, in Antwerp, indeed, with the raids, um, the police assist with the first raids. The second raid, they boycott, but then they are forced to organize it again the day after, and only the Antwerp police has to do it without assistance of the CPOSD. So they are being punished for the fact that they have sabotaged the second raid in Antwerp. So there is punishment for that. Of course, everything changes at the end of 1942 with Stalingrad as the, as the war changes. And of course, then people realize that German occupation is not the end of the war, that it could lead to German defeats, uh, Nazi German defeats. So it evolves over time. There's not one definite answer okay. to your question. It's yeah, very complex sure. and very interesting. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's many aspects. Um, okay. That's a whole yeah, podcast. It is, it in is a very. Yeah. It was a very big question and very yeah. uh, huge uh, discussion. And because uh, Belgian and German researchers were involved in the debate, we thought we uh, bring it up here. Um, let's return to the to the um, CDJ and namely to Gertrude and Ombrezin. Uh, you 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 told us they were from leftist background background. But uh, in 1939, the Soviet Union had a non-aggression uh, treaty with Germany. They yeah. even divided Poland amongst them. Gertrude um, Spa and many others in what was later the CDJ were communists, parts yes. of the Communist Party of Belgium. How was the situation for them? There was, uh, on the one hand, um, they were obliged to adhere to the party line, to the party orders. On the other hand, there was, of course, the urge to act in favor of the Jewish um, population. How did, they, how did they deal with this uh, dilemma? I think it was very hard for them because, indeed, they were torn between um, obeying party lines and feeling what they felt was going to happen because... Gertrude Spa personally, before 1940, we know from 1938, 1939, that he was already aware of the dangers of um, a, a possible invasion of the Soviet Union. We know from witness accounts that he actively contacted Jewish organizations before the occupation to make them aware of the threat and of the dangers of keeping records, for example, of their members. So creating sources on Jewish life in Belgium. So he was actively trying to persuade um, important members of the Jewish community, leaders of certain uh, associations. He had contacts with, with Zionist organizations as well and make them aware that if an invasion would happen and he was convinced that it would happen and he turned out to be right, that at least the Nazis would not get that much information from the Jewish organizations and the Jewish community itself, because Belgium is unique in the sense that registration of ethnicity or, or uh, uh, religious belief was not recorded, not before the Second World War and not after. It's something that is not, you're not allowed to do that in Belgium. So he could, of course, Jospa could not foresee that the Militärverwaltung would install an anti-Jewish decree stating that everybody would have to register at the municipality. But he showed the intention of preventing this collection of information that could be misused at a certain point in time. So you can see that he was preparing for the worst. 
And mm. with the non-aggression pact, I think for him and a lot of his colleagues who had very communist roots, um, it was very hard because you can see the communist faction in Belgium is large, especially amongst the Jewish community. You already mentioned Jospa came from Bessarabia. He came to Belgium in the early 1920s to study and uh, to become an engineer at the university in Liège, where he was part of the Bessarabian uh, Student Association. They were very active in contacts with uh, workers from the Liège region, which is a very industrial region. They were very socially active. They were very politically active, communist socialists. So he was very involved, and I, I can only imagine um, that he was very frustrated and that the 22nd of June 1941 actually came as a relief for him that it had finally happened and that action could now be taken. Um, and many of his colleagues with him because these communist circles in Belgium, um, there are dozens of these men, Jewish men, communists, who fought in the Spanish Civil War, 1936, 1937, 1938, who must have felt like fascism had made a coalition with their communist mother organization. And for them, that must have been more of a sense of betrayal than anything else. Yeah. So, um... In 1942, so um, after uh, two years of occupation, the Committee for the Defense of the Jews, the CDJ, was uh, founded. What were the main political groups in the CDJ and what were the main tasks when the committee were, was founded? So the, the committee was founded. There's not a real start date. Uh, we know from different testimonies of founders that some place it at the end of August, some in September 1942. It's officially it was October 1942. What happens is that the large raids in Antwerp take place as of mid-August um, 1942 until the end of September 1942. And Brussels, the one large anti-Jewish anti raid, takes place in the night of the 3rd on the 4th of September 1942. So this is really the time that the Nazis dropped the act of we're deporting people to Eastern Europe for them to work there. Um, and the rates show that everybody, babies, toddlers, children, men and women, elderly people are all being taken and deported. So the fall of 1942 is a turning point. And at that point, Gert Chospa, who is a founding member of the National Committee of the Independent Front, the Front de l'Independence, which is the large uh, communist resistance organization in Belgium. He will make the Independent Front aware of the needs of the Jewish community. And because at that point there is a lot of need within the Jewish community for help, but there's no structured help yet, Chospa sees the need of putting himself and the CDJ under the independent front, so not becoming a separate organization, but also to use the resources and the support of the independent front to, in a very short amount of time, in a couple of months, really build a structure to support the massive numbers of people that want to go into hiding. So he is um, the first, he is the one 
who gets green light from the Independent Front, together with Emile Hombresin, who is also in the Independent Front, and who Jospin knew from the League, to um, contact the people who he wants in the founding committee. And these six others, so there will be eight in total, Jospin and Hombresin and six others, they have to represent a large diversity within the Jewish community. We have um, people like uh, Chaim Perlman, who is a um, university professor. He is from Brussels. Most of them are from Brussels because it's the Brussels initiative to start with. So he is in the intellectual circles. He has contacts with uh, the bourgeoisie, with um, uh, uh, the uh, uh, well, the intelligentsia, as you call it in Dutch, um, who are also abroad and not only in Belgium, as an international uh, contact network. There are others like uh, Abu Schwerber, who is a leftist Zionist. So, um, Jospin is really a communist. Werber is a Zionist from the Linke Politzion, the leftist Zionist worker party. Um, and the others uh, represent uh, all varieties of Zionism, socialism. Um, one of them is liberal. So they are really meant to um, illustrate and represent all Jews in order to also be able to help all Jews within the Jewish community, which is, as I said, very diverse. So some of them are also linked to Jewish age societies like uh, Solidarity Juive, so Jewish Solidarity. Um, or Secours Mutuel, so Mutual Aid Society. It's very, very socially, economically, and politically diverse group, which is impressive because before the war, um, there were uh, there were a lot of internal discussions, debates, fights between these factions. So it's incredible that they came together at this specific time to help the community. Uh, was the task just about the organization of hiding, or was there also a military part of the group? Well, that is a difficult question because many people of the CDG had multiple roles. So it was not uncommon for people to be part of multiple organizations in the resistance. Jospa was a member of the Independent Front, but he was also one of the leaders of the CDJ. So he was both, he had both roles. And within the Jewish, the Committee for the Defense of Jews, you had different departments. Many of them focused on the hiding of children, the hiding of adults, the creation of false identity papers and ration stamps, because those in hiding needed to be fed and clothed, of course, and the publication of illegal newspapers. That, that's the different branches that were really active within the Committee for the Defense of Jews. The armed part was more of a collaboration with the armed factions of the Independent Front. So I, as I explained, the CDJ was a subsection of the Independent Front, so were the armed partisans. So if the CDJ had ideas about armed resistance, those were communicated with the Independent Front, and then they were given back to the armed partisans. So there is some cross-reference. The most important story that many people know, and which is pretty well known in, in Belgium as well, is the attack on the 20th transport. So on the 19th of April, 1943, 
uh, a deportation train with over 1,600 Jews reached the Dostan barracks. It leaves Mechelen and it uh, heads uh, for Auschwitz and the train will pass through Leuven, the university town. So in a small town be- before, just before Leuven, it's halfway between Mechelen and Leuven, is Boortmeerbeek and that is where three young men will stop the train with a red lantern. They will shoot in the air a few times and they will be able to open one wagon and 17 Jews will be able to escape. So that's the famous attack on the train of transport. There are other attempts to escape um, along the way. There's another attempt to halt the train as well, but that fails. Um, So the idea of this attack to stop the train, it's an idea of Jospin. Um, with uh, Moritz Bolle and Roger van Praag, which are also two members of the of the committee de, uh, of the Jewish Defe- committee for the defense of Jews, but uh, Moritz Bolle, for example, is also a member of the Dutch Paris Network, which is a network which smuggles pilots from the Netherlands via Belgium to um, to France. So you can see there's interconnection between these networks as well. So they get the idea to stop the train because. On this train are multiple members of the Committee for the Defense of Jews and they want to get them out. They want to rescue them. Mm-hmm. There are also some members of the armed partisans in there. There was um, an armed partisan brigade which consisted only of Jews, which was active in Brussels, uh, which were also communists. They were members of the Madeuvre Immigré. And there were several of them also present in this transport. So there was an incentive to stop the train and get people out. But the Committee for the Defense of Jews by itself, they had the idea, they did not have the manpower nor the experience to organize such an attack. So okay. they asked the Independent Front and they um, made contact with the armed partisans. But the armed partisans said that it was too risky because the idea was to liberate all prisoners. So over 1,600, which was, of course, not doable. So the, the partisans said no. But... Um, Moritz Bolle knew some people who knew some people, and they contacted uh, some of the members of another network, Group G, which was a network, an espionage and sabotage network, mainly among students of the Université Libre de Bruxelles, so the Free University of Brussels, which uh, had ceased its um, activities. And one of these students was Jura Lifschitz, who was not really a member of the resistance, but his uh, older brother Alexander was. And Alexander had quite some experience with attacks and sabotage and uh, assassinations. So Jura heard about the assignment, was informed about it by Moritz Bolle. It's possible that Chaspa was there, but we don't really know. Uh, there are different accounts on, on that meeting. And even when they called it off, um, Jura insisted on, do, uh, on, 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 on attacking the convoy. So he and two comrades of, uh, from him in high school, uh, they did it. The partisans did deliver the revolver they used and the, the uh, C- CDJ delivered money that they could distribute amongst those who escaped from the train so they could buy a tram mm-hmm. ticket to get back to Brussels. So the CDG so they even, wasn't even helped them who yeah. escaped. So they helped those who escaped from the train. Um, and the funds came from the from the uh, CDJ. But actively oh, okay. involvement not really. I mean on, on an intellectual and okay. planning phase, yes. In the execution phase it was um Lifschitz and uh, Robert Frank and uh, Robert Mestrieu and Jean Frank Lebon. Yeah. 
what I find so uh, um, fascinating about that um, is that there was a military response to uh, the Germans trying to deport Jews from from Belgium. Last uh, in our last episode, we spoke with Michael A. Meyer about Leo Beck, and Leo Beck was the head of the Jewish Council or the Reichsvertretung in uh, in Germany, and they were also they they were. Uh, calling for uh, the deportees to report to the assembly camps and so on. And in Belgium, there were uh, Jewish partisans who asked the Jewish council to stop. And when they wouldn't stop, they destroyed the archive with the names of the deportees-to-be. They shot even a representative of uh, of the Jewish council and tried to, to, um, to distort and to... Uh, stop the, the the logics of the bureaucratical organization of the deportations. And that I find very, very remarkable in the Western European context, I think. But um, let's stop maybe with the uh, military and uh, get back to the CDJ and what it is most known for, the rescue of uh, people and especially children who wanted to go into hiding. And for that, they had to cooperate with lots of other groups and institutions, some of uh, the groups you already named. But how was the, the, the cooperation with them? They were mainly a communist, Zionist uh, organization. Most of the members were, of course, Jewish, with the exception of um, the, the, the Catholic you named, named uh, Ambrezin. Um But they worked together with, uh, for example, the National Organization for Children and other Catholic organizations. How did that uh, happen and how did that uh, that work, that uh, hiding of children of others? So it is important to know that when the Committee for the Defense of Jews was founded in fall 1942, the first weeks were they were working ad hoc. So... They, they were trying to deal with the situation in the field in a not very organized manner. It's not like the organization functioned at its fullest from day one. When the CDJ was founded, the Children's Department or Children's Bureau, if you like, which was supposed to hide all the children, only consisted of two persons. It was Maurice Heiber, uh, who was the head of it, and then there was Yvonne Jospin, who was actually born Hava Kreutzmann, But she's the wife of Gert Jospin, her Noldeger, her war name is Yvonne, so she's known as Yvonne Jospin. So those were the two first who took in the first requests for assistance. But indeed, soon after, um, via Emile Hombrezin, who was crucial for, for the uh, CDJ, they came in contact with uh, Suzanne Mons, Le Petit, a widow who um, had a lot of contacts within Uh, Catholic organizations, uh, schools, sanatoria, vacation colonies. So she was of crucial importance to provide the CDJ with locations where more than one child could be placed. And from these three people from the fall of 1942, we see that the organization grows steadily. Uh, and by the end of 1942, by December, this Children's Bureau, Children's Department, has really professionalized. So we see that Maurice Heiber remains in charge and Yvonne Jospin is his left hand, but there will be three subsections there. We have one sec subsection which collects requests for 
eight, and that's also mm-hmm. a very specific way in which they operate. So they are in contact with the Jewish families and other um, members of this branch, this first branch, are in contact with the institutes. So that's the first one, the collection of information. Who needs something and who wants to give something to the CDJ? The second branch is the placement department, which is led by Ida Sterno. She um, will make the matches. So which child will go where? And she has five couriers, five girls uh, who uh, work for her, who pick up the children and bring them to their hiding place who also check up on the children and then the third branch is the administration which is led by um, Estera Heiber-Feierstein so Maurice Heiber's wife and she will uh, she and some of the others will do the administration so keep track of which child is where how the payments are made because of course many families everything is uh, um, paid by uh, ration stamps so to provide for uh, the children in hiding, they need uh, certain ration stamps uh, falsified or uh, payments so you can go and buy stuff on the black market, which is also um, uh, paid for the upkeep of the children in hiding. So you can see this professionalization through um, the first few months of the uh, the war, uh, of the creation of the CDJ. And in this manner, uh, from a few children, they will rise to estimates numbers of 2,100 children that are placed in hiding directly via the Jewish def- uh, the Committee for the Defense of Jews. There are other networks. So the main branch of the CDJ is located in Brussels, but we see that over time there will be branches in uh, Liège, in Charleroi, in Antwerp as well. And these even have uh, subsections of themselves in smaller towns. So the network will really spread out and cover the national area. In some places like Leuven or Namur, there are already hiding networks in place. In Leuven, we have Abbé André, uh, who is, uh, sorry, um, Père Bruno Reinders in Leuven and Abbé André in Namur, who are already very active, who place dozens, if not hundreds of children. And we see that there is a very productive collaboration in the local field there. So that's how they practically organize it. Um, thanks for the link, because in our exhibition, we tell the story of uh, André Gölen. She was a non-Jewish teacher and was in contact with the Jewish underground, helping to place Jewish children from the families in Catholic institutional families, as you just told us. Um, she used a notebook, what we actually have in the exhibition, in which she wrote down the full names, the dates of birth and addresses of the children. Some of the names are crossed out and these are the children which she was able to uh, take to safe places. Uh, Most of the names which aren't crossed out uh, got actually deported. Um, It seems that she did not write this notebook alone, as we can make out several handwritings. Um, in case of several names, the cost of a lodging is also included on, in the notebook. Um, actually, it seems like a risky way of organization uh, because the notebook has all the information in it. Um, would you say that was the normal way or um, could you maybe explain something more about um, how they were trying to um, to take it to, or to leave it in the underground, you know? And another question that came up is how did they finance their work? For example, for the, for example, the costs for the lodging. Yes, the 
so the administration which was done by Estera Heiber, uh, Firestein, or who developed the system. Actually, the notebook of André is a uh, is a derivative of the central administration. So uh, the CDJ had an office uh, where they worked. They had a, a file card system, and the file cards contained the false name of the child and the number. So the 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 hiding name that was given to a child and the number. And this number corresponded to the same number in different booklets. So there was one booklet which contained the child's real name, another booklet that contained the child's official address or the address of the parents. There was one booklet that contained the child's uh, hiding place. So you could, via using these different booklets and the central card system, you could put together all the information of a certain child. And the booklets were hidden in different places, so if one was discovered, that would not be that bad because you would not have the others. We This is the central card index with the 2,100 names of the children in general that were hidden by the, Jew, by the Committee for the Defense of Jews. Um, the booklet, what we call the booklet of André Golen, is actually the booklet of Ida Sterno and André Golen mm-hmm. and Claire Murdoch. So um, it's actually a derivative of the central index and the booklet was used by Ida Sterno's unit, so the placement unit of the Brussels section of the CDG. Of the CDG. Um, André and Ida shared a, an apartment for a certain period of time and they kept the booklet there, hidden under the floor underneath a carpet. So the booklet actually contains the child's real name their real address, and indeed uh, either their age or the date of birth, it depends on, on, on the child, mm-hmm. and uh, information on payments or other remarks. And the remarks can go very broad, like child has Jewish appearance, so place it somewhere not that obvious, for example. So you have very uh, in-depth remarks there about children's uh, appearance or behavior, like this is a difficult child, uh, cries a lot, cannot be placed in an apartment, or I don't know that kind of stuff. So indeed, okay. this was this was the uh, the booklet used by this specific section. If indeed they picked up a child, they made. Um, I'm actually working on on a study of the booklet, so it's not completely clear all the markings. But um, indeed, the markings do mean that some children, unfortunately. Um, could not be helped anymore. We know from Andrea's testimony that in some cases she was able to persuade parents to give her their child and she would say, I will come back the next day to pick up the child with its luggage to bring it to a safe place. And then she came back 24 hours later and the door was sealed with a Nazi emblem stating, okay, the family has been arrested. So we know that Mm -hmm. they were not successful in every contact that they made. But the booklet in itself, it contains a bit over 1,000 names. It's a very good insight into how the Brussels section worked, which children they were able to uh, help, and unfortunately, which not, but which were contacted by the CDG. So it also gives us an impression of the needs of the Jewish community. But it's very interesting. And it, it gives an, uh, yeah. us an impression how cruel the process was because yeah. as you mentioned it was noted that this is a difficult uh, child with a especially Jewish appearance mm-hmm. and it's uh, written there and 
if you have uh, your yourself children and maybe also a difficult child and you think that this makes maybe the difference between going into hiding or mm -hmm. maybe not being placed that's that's just uh in, incredible to to realize and also the process if if you think andre gulen and uh, the girls as you said who would uh, fetch the children they would not tell the parents where they would take the children to so the parents would just the parents were in the dark, yes. And now that they come to think of it, um, Ida did not have children, nor did any of the others, I think, at that time. And um, certainly André, and maybe uh, André had children after the war, um, so did um, Paul Renard, one of the other couriers of this, this office. And they have been noted to say that if they had the mothers... At that time, that they would not have been able to do the job because it yeah, would be too, so. too difficult for them. Um, I can only imagine the pain, but also the desperation that these parents went through to have to give up their child in order to save it, not knowing what would happen because they were giving a child to a complete stranger. And it, the child was taken God knows where. Um, so in some cases, certainly in 1944, The CDJ tried to provide mail service so that the correspondence was possible. But by 1944, many of the parents had been arrested and deported and it became much more difficult because there was so much work to do. All these people had to be provided with. Uh, funding was needed. So this came second after all the practical organization of the work that they did. Regarding how did they finance it? So... Um, a certain sum was attributed to each child per month. Um, I think it's uh, uh, 500 for until a certain age and 750 from another age. Depends. Um, but there's many ways in which the, the CDJ got its funding. We see that there are, um, there are um, connections with the joint um, in America. So the American Aid Society for Jews Overseas um, who, who sends money. Um, we also know in the beginning they depended a lot on wealthier members of the Jewish community. So from the idea of spread the wealth, they were asked to contribute more. And this sum was then uh, distributed amongst the most needy families in hiding who could not pay for themselves. But of course, with the months uh, advancing, the war not being over soon, people had Uh, by anti-Jewish decree had to give up their businesses, their bank accounts were empty, all their valuables were confiscated. So this was not sustainable in the long term. We see from mm. uh, 1943 that members of, of the Committee for the Defense of Jews, and especially Benjamin Nijkerk, uh, a, a Dutch-Jewish man who was, uh, had strong ties to, to the banking world, made several trips to Switzerland um, to uh, talk to people there to provide sums. In 1943, also, the Belgian government in London started to make donations to the CDJ, uh, especially when larger social organizations in Belgium, official organizations, became part in the work done by the CDJ. So we see there is a National uh, Bureau for Child Welfare, which still exists today. It was called the Oeuvre Nationale dans l'Enfance. It was led by Yvonne, Yvonne Nevejean. She becomes officially a member of the CDJ in, uh, in 1943. And when once she is 
making her the homes, the children's homes and the children's sanatoria, which she's responsible for, available to the CDJ to hide children there, we see that the, uh, the, the Belgian government in London is more inclined to provide the CDJ with money to pay for uh, the people in, in hiding. So there's different ways in which they get their mm-hmm. funding and they actually succeed pretty well. They also get some funds funding via the Jewish Council of Belgium, which is called the Association of Jews in Belgium, uh, because some of the banks, the Belgian banks, want to provide the Jewish underground with money, but they refuse to pay to a communist organization, the Independence Front. So they take a detour, and that's how they Mm. do it. So the connection between the CDJ and the Jewish Council is also very interesting and very complex, but it's... Uh, yeah, yeah, you've wrote about that extensively. extensively. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting because you have the official Jewish Council installed by the Nazi occupying authorities, which has to arrange official Jewish life in Belgium. And then you have the CDJ, which is the Underground Social Aid Society. And for a long time, literature describe the two of them as being the same institution but that's actually not completely accurate the two were two separate organizations one official one illegal and there were connections between the two because many members of the cdj were also working for the jewish council but in a in a hidden way so the jewish council was not aware of this double role but the cdj of course was very interesting topic um, again in separate podcasts uh, we're going to um, link your article in the show notes later on so ah, everyone cool. could Thanks. read it also um, for the because we are almost <laughs> at the end of our interview sadly um, there is one more question um, because um, they've been children uh, which uh, got rescued and um, so they could be still alive <laughs> some of them <laughs> yes did you are. meet some of the children yeah did yeah, you meet yeah, some I of did, them I did um, unfortunately their number is decreasing um, but we see for example after liberation many of the parents were deported and the CDJ became an official Jewish organization uh, aid society Jewish social service after the war Uh, taking on these children that were orphaned or whose parents did survive and could not take care of them. Uh, So many children remained in the system, never talked about what had happened to them during the war. And it's only in the 1990s that they started telling their stories, that they had their own organization, the Organization for the Hidden Child in Belgium. And it's from then on that we actually see their stories and they also started to find their way to our museum, to the Jewish Museum of Deportation and Resistance, which became Caserna d'Ossa. Um, so I, I've, I've met with multiple of them and they have a very diverse and broad perspective on the history of them, of the, of the CD, CDJ. They really have... And me too have the utmost respect for the work that these men and women did uh, with while endangering their own lives. They saved thousands, I mean, 2,000 mm-hmm. children, but it is also calculated in some instances that they saved over 5,000 Jewish adults by providing them with food and ration stamps. So I've, I've met some of them. Some are really testifying about what happened, about their connections with 
the, uh, with the CDJ, especially with André Golen, who was a long-living member of the CDJ. She, she was 100 years old when she passed away last year. So she was the last one. So they really um, cultivate and, and honor this, this bond that they have. Others, because their name is in, in the CDJ records, have explicitly told me personally that they do not want to be looked upon as victims, that they have, that, that the Holocaust was a certain part of their life. But, for example, for these, it's a smaller group, but, for example, they don't want their records or their names to be known. So GDPR-wise, that's also very difficult regarding research. That's a whole different aspect of okay. historical research and going into hiding. But you can see that, that they all have... Um, that they all have a strong connection to the CDJ as a person and, and as a survivor. Okay. Well, I think we could um, talk another hour about the Belgium case, but actually we're close to the end. <laughs> we just uh, thank you for, for what you were talking about. Um, and uh, I guess this will be a really uh, informative episode. <laughs> and there is a lot... <laughs> Thanks. to talk about more <laughs> the show notes are going to be huge <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah for thank you very much thank you for it was me. really uh, fascinating and um, um, all the best to the colleagues at the caserne d'ocin where i worked a very long time ago but um, i still have uh, very warm feelings uh, towards uh, all of you so uh, thank you for for being here doreen and um, uh, yeah uh, until the next time hopefully thank you